to episode 17 of the Echo Corpus Christi podcast, the podcast featuring Corpus Christi's creators, makers, doers, and builders. I love drones. I think they're amazing, they fascinate me, and I love to learn about them. So on this episode, we're going to talk to Colonel Sanders. Not the Colonel Sanders famous for fried chicken, but the Colonel Sanders soon to be famous for leading Lone Star UAS at Texas A&M Corpus Christi. That's the drone program that all of the major companies who will in the near future deliver products to our doors via drone, that's the program that they will use to provide their data, their software, and sometimes even their hardware. In other words, what is happening now through the Lone Star UAS program under Colonel Sanders' leadership is going to power drone delivery in the near future. So before long, when you order from any major retailer online, and that gets dropped off at your front doorstep by a drone, you can thank Colonel Sanders and his team at Lone Star UAS at Texas A&M Corpus Christi. And Colonel Sanders and I were introduced to each other by my friend Chief DeVisser in the Corpus Christi Fire Department and by a former guest on this podcast, Russell Frankus, also at Texas A&M Corpus Christi. And that's one of the coolest things about living in Corpus is that we have access to higher education that brings in these amazing programs like the Lone Star UAS drone program. So as we listen to what Colonel Sanders is telling us today on this episode of Echo Corpus Christi, let's remember to be thankful for the fact that we get to live in this great city that has access to, pun intended, top flight higher education that gives us the opportunity to be part of the future. Let's listen to Colonel Sanders. Well, Mike Sanders, welcome to the Etcher Corpus Christi podcast. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for taking the time amid this um, coronavirus social distancing. I'll let our listeners know that we are appropriately distanced, although I can't really measure six feet because I'm a lawyer and not an engineer. But I'm assuming <laughs> this is uh, Masa Menos six feet. But, uh, well, we and we have plenty of hand sanitizer. <laughs> that's right. And we didn't shake hands. So. Uh, that's all very true. So um, again, thank you for taking time. We'd love to start off by hearing your Corpus story. How did you get here or are you a Corpus native? Sure, yeah. Uh, well, it, it's, it's a circuitous route that brought me to Corpus <laughs> Christi. I'll just leave it, I'll just tell you that. I'm actually a, I'm actually a Texas native. Okay. I was born in Houston and I lived in Houston until I was five years old. Uh, my father was uh, a petrochemist, worked mm -hmm. in uh, oil fields and a refinery. He, uh, my, my, my mom and dad met at Lamar Tech University, just, mm -hmm. uh, just outside mm -hmm. of Beaumont, and that's where his family was all from. And then when I was five years old, we moved to Bakersfield, California, all so right. that he could be the lead chemist in a, in a refinery in Bakersfield. Uh, I joined the Army in 1985. Mm -hmm. I spent 30 years in the Army. Uh, retiring in 2014 uh, and then uh, when my father died uh, I came back to Texas to visit some friends in December of 2017 and I uh, really just kind of got the hankering to come back home mm -hmm. if that makes sense uh, my my mom was originally from Maine and so when they retired that's where they settled so I just came back to visit some friends and I said, look, I'm looking for some opportunities. What can mm -hmm. I find and what can I develop? Uh, when I first retired, I tried to move back to Texas then and it just didn't unfold. So um, 
So I started exploring opportunities not, over, not only in Corpus Christi, but uh, uh, A&M and College Station, and I hate to say it, but at UT, the Applied Research Lab up in Austin. And um, <laughs> We won't tell anybody. No, we won't, we won't. <laughs> and uh, it took about six <coughs> months, and uh, originally I was hired to come down to be the associate director here at the test site okay. um, to really be um, the, um, I guess for lack of a better term, the process guy. Okay. Um, the, the director at that time was a guy by the name of Jerry Hendricks who had 35 plus years as an aerospace engineer wow. and did a really great job uh, doing that. But um, there were some things going on with Jerry between the fire and stuff that was going on in his family. So I was going to be kind of the Mr. Inside so mm -hmm. that he was freed up to be Mr. Outside. I was here for about six weeks. I got here in <laughs> September of 18. I was here for about six weeks. Jerry took me to breakfast one day and basically <coughs> dropped the bombshell, which was uh, because of some personal things going on with his family, he needed to relocate to Huntsville, Alabama full okay. time. Well, uh, that left me as the acting director, mm -hmm. executive director, and then last year, uh, September of last year, I was appointed the full-time executive director. So I got here uh, because I was looking to do something different, mm -hmm. but, if I had but if I had applied for the job I'm currently holding now, they probably wouldn't have picked me because <laughs> I wasn't exactly qualified. My, my background in the Army was I was an infantry officer. Okay. Um, I was an undergraduate history major. Mm -hmm. The Army sent me to graduate school to get a master's degree in industrial engineering and management science. Wow. Uh, the last 12 years of my career in the Army, I really dealt with um, requirements and new technologies mm -hmm. and the integration of new technologies to provide operationally relevant capabilities or to do experiments on mm -hmm. what the future of the Army would look like. So I was very comfortable in trying to figure out uh, how do you use new technology in new ways to, mm -hmm. to do things. And so really it was just a lift and shift. Uh, my, my area of expertise then was uh, modeling and simulation. Okay. Uh, and it was really just using all the lessons learned in, in, a, in a new technology. And mm -hmm. so what I tell people is, we're, although we do do research and applied research, I don't really consider us uh, inventors as much as early adopters, okay. where what we do is we try to figure out what, what's going on out there and the what's next, mm -hmm. and then try to work with uh, students and faculty on campus to help make it happen. So that is a really long way of saying, here's how I ended up in Corpus Christi. But I am so glad that I came. I'm loving every bit of it uh, right now. Mm -hmm. It's great to be back home in the sure. Republic. <laughs> and it certainly, it certainly beats the heck out of my lifestyle when I was living in DC. Oh, um, I just love Corpus. Mm -hmm. It's a great little town on the water. Mm -hmm. It's actually bigger than Bakersfield. Right. So it's bigger than the town I grew up with. So for me, Corpus is a big city. Mm -hmm. So. And, and I would imagine there are some similarities between Corpus and Bakersfield being that the hydrocarbons tend to dominate the economy of both cities. Yes, it, it did, and then, but if you look at, well, and it, you know, if you look at Bakersfield now, it's really kind of diversified because it was agriculture, it okay. was uh, petrochemical, there was the music industry, mm -hmm. 
you know, Buck Owens oh, yeah. and the Bakersfield sound. When I was a kid growing up, I couldn't stand that. And sure. now that's the only <laughs> thing I have on my iPod is classic country. So, uh, but uh, yeah, no, it it is. And um, but I what I really uh, what I really like about it is kind of the the small town feel. Mm -hmm. uh, people still say hello and goodbye and yeah. yes sir and yes ma'am. And uh, I just I really enjoy. Um, I just really enjoy being part of a vibrant community, even mm -hmm. if I'm just a very small, small piece of it. So let's talk a little bit about how the Army decided that a history major needed to go and become an industrial engineer. How does that process work for oh those of us that are not familiar with it? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> luck and happenstance okay. more more. I, I, you know, that's what they say, right? Luck is when opportunity meets preparation, mm -hmm. I guess. Um, yeah, so I joined the Army in 1985, and I, I was uh, an infantry officer. I okay. did I did everything. Uh, I started out at uh, Fort Bragg in the 82nd Airborne Division, um, and so I did every, you know, Jumpmaster, Ranger, mm -hmm. the whole, all, all that fun stuff sure. you want to do when right. you're a young <laughs> man, right? That's right. Um, and then, and then after I, uh, after I left Fort Bragg, um, I was assigned to uh, Germany in a Bradley mechanized infantry uh, outfit. I deployed as a company commander to Desert Storm mm -hmm. uh, back back in the 20th <laughs> century. <laughs> right. I, and, uh, and, and at the time, I thought I was just going to do my eight-year obligation for ROTC mm -hmm. and then leave. But after Desert Storm, I realized I really kind of enjoyed what was going on. Mm -hmm. So I spent a lot of time at that point, uh, just doing training. I was at uh, the Joint Readiness Training Center as an observer controller, and I was just really focused on the infantry and being the best training officer I could be. Okay. Um, and then um, I actually, uh, and then when I got promoted to major, I, my first assignment was actually in the Pentagon, and that was uh, 1996. Okay. And that was. That was my first of four assignments in the Pentagon mm -hmm. to my chagrin, but I was assigned to a brand new office called the Army Modeling and Simulation Office. Okay. And at the time, what the Army was trying to do was figure out how to coordinate all the kind of disparate activities within the Army for people who use modeling and simulation. So most people, when they think about that, they think about uh, like simulators mm -hmm. to drive tanks or, or helicopters, and that's what we call virtual. Okay. Um, there are the computer war games that drive staff exercises, and that's, that was really kind of constructive stuff. And in Europe at the time, they, the, they had conducted this experiment called STOE, so Synthetic Theater of War Europe. Okay because the Army loves its acronym. Absolutely. So basically what it was was the first demonstration that you could integrate simulators, constructive simulation, staff exercises, and live training all into a single uh, synthetic environment mm -hmm. uh, to drive training. Okay. Um, the Chief of Staff of the Army basically created this uh, advanced warfighter experiment um, funding code uh, and it was a $25 million effort, and I was the, Major Sanders was the young project <laughs> officer assigned with how do you develop a cutting edge capability outside of the normal acquisition process. Mm -hmm. So as a very young officer, um, I got um, introduced to how the Army did requirements, how it 
developed a budget within a mm -hmm. bureaucracy, a two-year budget process, mm -hmm. how you assign, um, how you develop the requirements and then hand them off to what we call the material developer because uh, the person who's, who figured out what the requirement is couldn't at that time be the same person who says, and here's how you resource or okay. develop. So it was really about finding, how do you help people define what the requirements are and then how do you figure out, you work with the material developer to mm -hmm. give you the capability that you're trying to build. And at the time, it was considered outside the normal acquisition process, so we had to basically invent it okay. as we went along. Mm -hmm. So I was always, and I was always uh, a little enamored with that anyway, from a how you do staff training, mm -hmm. right? Because while it's you know you really want to be out in the field working with soldiers all the time, um, the only time you can really um, work large staffs, right, is in this, this synthetic environment. And then at the same time, the Army was uh, fielding what it called the uh, battle command systems, mm -hmm. which are ba basically uh, digital decision aids, okay. right? Uh, and how do you maintain a situational or a, a common operating picture? Okay. We were used to dealing with maps and stickies, mm -hmm. And now it was, you know, uh, being able to look at a computer screen and see a digital map. So mm -hmm. we were going from analog to digital. Okay. Um, and uh, as part of working in the Army Modeling and Simulation Office, they, you could apply for uh, an education program. Mm -hmm. And so what I did was applied to graduate school, and they accepted me into the program. And at that time. Um, I realized that you know what I really needed to do was learn the industrial engineering process, okay. right? Because mm -hmm. that's what I was doing. Right. Uh, so I just went to school to get trained on it, and specifically, I was looking at how we used modeling and simulation to develop training systems. Mm -hmm. So that was that was why the Army decided to do that. And then late in my career, uh, at about the twenty-year mark, I decided, well, you know, I want to do this. Full-time. Okay. Uh, the Army at that time would have you work in your primary. W I would work as an infantry mm -hmm. officer, and then I'd go do a staff job. Okay. Right? And then in the 2000s, uh, the Army decided, well, you know what? Maybe we'll just make permanent staff officers and assign them a specialty. Okay. And so I was I se selected to become a modeling and simulation professional mm -hmm. in the Army, and that's what I did the last 10 years. And at that point, I, my job was working in the Pentagon, mm -hmm. uh, helping us determine requirements, assign resources, mm -hmm. evaluate technologies. So that's what I did. And then uh, I did, I, the other thing I did is I worked for an organization called JIDO. Okay. It was the Joint IED Defeat Organization, and they were basically uh, assigned with very rapidly figuring out what the uh, soldiers in the field mm -hmm. needed by way of counter IED equipment, working with industry to figure out what these capabilities are and then rapidly deploy that. So I, I, I was just doing that, using the same tools I learned for modeling and simulation mm -hmm. for something else. And that really, and, and one of the things we did were deploy drones, okay, right? And unmanned mm -hmm. uh, ground vehicles as well. So I. I was always a part of that, and so when this opportunity presented itself, it was like, 
Yeah, I think I can do that. Right. I think I can help. <laughs> I, I think I can help do something like that. that. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about the the complexity of being in a giant bureaucracy, but yet also on the cutting edge of technology. In other words, um, usually big organizations what might drive some of the R&D that results in new products, but a lot of times it's a small company or a small entity that actually creates the technology that is the future-looking technology, but in the military, as I understand it just from where I've sat in my life, um, it is both on the cutting edge and developing the technologies, but at the same time, it has this, the lag comes in the procure procurement and other areas, yeah, and yeah. how does that work? How do, how do you move, in other words, let's, let's talk specifically about IEDs. So we know there's a huge need in the field. How do you get from, we have this giant need, and now we know, we, because we're out there experiencing the IEDs, we know what things might work, but yet it takes us a long time historically to get from, we need it to actually being able to buy it and deploy it. Right, yeah, so what we, what we would call that is, that's that classic uh, Department of Defense 5000.9 acquisition process, okay. right? And that, um, and that literally takes uh, you know 10 to 15 years mm -hmm. to go from concept to deployment of a capability. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that is based on the acquisition rules okay. and a very rigid process of ensuring that you do rigorous testing of the capabilities mm -hmm. under all kinds of operational environments so that it actually performs to standard. Okay. And so that process really starts uh, with uh, concept development and experimentation. I think we need a new capability to do this. Mm -hmm. And this is really what ties back to the modeling and simulation because the models or simulation or tools throughout the entire process okay. because you go from concept to experiment to development mm -hmm. to test and analysis the biggest part of the test and analysis is making sure that you've done the operational um, environment correctly okay. so that you test against it, which then feeds into the training, which sense, then yeah. feeds into the sustaining. So it's really a, mm -hmm. a continuum. Um, and and generally the way it, the, it starts with, okay, here's a, here's a future concept. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I did I was the experimentation officer on something that was called the Objective Force Task Force, and that was before 9-11, where the Army said, we need to redefine ourselves, mm -hmm. and we need to f figure out what the future looks like. And uh, so this was back in 2000. And so we came up with a concept for what we thought the Army's capabilities needed to be in 2015 and 2025. Mm -hmm. And I have that sitting in, <laughs> it's a, I actually have all that paperwork okay. there, right? And so one of those things, um, and, and then what we would classically do is buy a single piece of equipment and then try to fit it in. Right. And this was the first time what we tried to do was figure out what is the big thing need mm -hmm. to look like, and then we'll put the little pieces into it. Well, 9-11 uh, happened, right. and then so the... So that concept uh, never really got off the ground because of uh, real world events mm -hmm. and changed that. But what was really interesting about that is some of those platforms and concepts actually did get integrated. And specifically the two things that I concentrated on 
uh, when I was in graduate school were the unmanned aerial systems mm -hmm. and the unmanned ground systems. So the robotics on the ground and the robotics. And what we basically s had to do is create a vision for the future. So we said, okay, if we have four different classes of aircraft mm -hmm. with the following operational capabilities, how would we employ that system? And so at the time it was, okay, well we're gonna deploy a 40-pound aircraft that is able to fly for you know five miles, mm -hmm. be controlled remotely, it'll have some kind of autonomous sense and avoid capability so that it could operate itself either under direct control mm -hmm. of a pilot or autonomously do either um, with sensors that are capable of detecting the following kinds of things, mm -hmm. right, IR, infra, uh, or, or heat, whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and then it was, okay, well, so, so now we have an operational concept, and it's like, well, what technologies do we currently have? Okay. And what's the readiness mm -hmm. level, technology readiness level of current technology? What's the gap? How can we spend money to do IR and D mm -hmm. to close that gap, uh, or what's or how can we work with industry to say, show us, here's a requirement, and show us how you would fulfill this requirement. And that's really where JIDO came along, okay. where Congress had set up, um, don't act, don't quote me, but I think it was like a twenty-five million dollar rapid acquisition authority so that the JIDO commander could spend up to two million dollars on a rapid acquisition of a prototype. Mm, that makes and, sense. And what we would do is we would say, we need the following capability, we, we'd open it to industry, three or four people would respond with the capability. Normally what you would do at that point is do a very rigorous series of testing uh, to make sure, and what we would do is we would just take a look at and run a, a very rapid test mm -hmm. and then l deploy it to the field, give it to the soldiers in the field and the actual operational use of the equipment became the test and then either it worked or, or it didn't work. Okay. And if it worked, we bought more. Mm -hmm. And if it didn't work, uh, we didn't. And then after a, uh, after a two year process, we then had to hand that off to a service and the service then um, had to to do that. And okay. so I think, you know, the MRAPs are an example mm -hmm. of something like that. Uh, the And that's actually what spurred the uh, remotely piloted aircraft uh, in the Department of Defense today. So the Reapers, the Predators, mm -hmm. the Global Hawks, all those were really rapid uh, acquisitions deployed in support of the global war on terrorism and then Iraq and Afghanistan. But so so that's an example, so that was kind of a spin out. So that was really a long way to say, and so where are we today? Yeah. So what happened was, is Congress back in 2012 said, you know, we've got all these commercially developed small UASs uh, or UAVs, um, but we don't really have a methodology for safely integrating them. What we need to do is create test sites. And there was, a New Mexico State was a, uh, a standalone test site. And they said, well, this is good, but we need more. Mm -hmm. So Congress authorized the creation of six additional FAA test sites um, and, and said to the FAA, you need to implement it because the FAA has the statutory requirements for the safe integration of all aircraft in the national airspace system. Right. 
So they so and so the state of Texas applied to be one of the test sites. Uh, Governor Perry at the time said, "Well, we only want one response to the FAA." He gave it to the A and M system. The A and M system said, "Corpus Christi, you're leading it," and voila. Uh, <laughs> The FAA awarded and stood up the Lone Star UAS mm -hmm. Center. Uh, the Board of Regents approved us as a, as a center and said to uh, Corpus Christi, Texas A&M Corpus Christi, they're, they're part of uh, the entity. And so we stood up in 2013, mm -hmm. I joined in 2018. <coughs> Congress reauthorized the test sites for another five years through 2023. Okay. Uh, we're chartered with the FA by the FAA to help do experimentation, mm -hmm. uh, develop standards, and uh, just really do tests on uh, UAVs or UASs. And I'll pause right now. I keep using those terms interchangeably. <laughs> so let me. The lawyer in me is saying we need to define okay. the terms. Okay. <laughs> so a UAS is an unmanned. A UAV is an unmanned aerial vehicle. Mm -hmm. It's simply the aircraft or the platform. Oh, that makes sense. Okay. Right. So and everybody. Locally, so it's the drone. That's the drone. Right? Okay. So it's just the aircraft. The unmanned aircraft system is all the components that you need in order to fly the drone safely. And at the time, it was the pilot, the flight control software, and and generally that's the ground mm -hmm. control station, uh, and then the aircraft. So the three of those together, the system is the UAS. Right. So that's the system we're talking. That makes about. sense. Okay. Right. And so, um, in now the structure that the FAA uses is everybody is familiar with um, manned flight, right? Because that's what the we've FAA all experienced it, we've sure. all experienced manned flight. So there was a very large set of rules associated with manned flight, right? And then there were always the exceptions. There were the hobbyists. Mm -hmm. There were the gliders. There were all these other things. Well, so, and there was a very well-defined set of rules that were generally user-developed, user-based. But then we started these drones, and right. it's like, wh how the heck, <laughs> what, how? And so it just kind of has evolved over time where they said, okay, well, we've got to adopt existing authorities and way of doing things and apply it with uh, the use of drones. And so that's where it's really exciting because uh, we're chartered to help the FAA work with the community of users, mm -hmm. develop community-based standards, provide feedback and data, in exchange for which the FAA as a test site has authorized us uh, certain authorities that uh, they, they wouldn't otherwise give to somebody else. Mm -hmm. And so we are able to uh, fly anywhere is in what's called Class G airspace, unrestricted airspace, okay. generally 400 feet and below where commercial traffic mm -hmm. and man traffic doesn't normally operate. Or normally you have to do that under <coughs> a, a, with a pilot's license under sure. a certain set of very rigorous controls. Well, because we've already gone through an inspection process mm -hmm. and demonstrated that we know how to safely manage uh, operations in aircraft and have a rigorous uh, safety management system, the FAA has given every test site uh, authorization to all Class D airspace in the United States. So in essence, anywhere I go mm -hmm. in Class D airspace and fly, I've developed a test range, and as long as I'm operating the test range within <coughs> the parameters that the FAA's let mm -hmm. me do, uh, do it, I, I, I do that. Um, and and um, so 
But in but but in order to do that, you know, the liability and the risk is borne by the test right. site and by right. the system. So the FAA can say, well, as <coughs> long as you do it within the rules and you assume the liability, you can go ahead and do that. How kind? <laughs> well, it, it actually makes sense because mm -hmm. what that lets me do is that lets mm -hmm. me, you know, that's where I can do kind of the early adoption mm -hmm. and kind of do some of the R&D because working with the faculty, not only here in Corpus Christi, but with the A&M system, right. but really other colleges and universities within the state, if a professor has a research problem and we can work on it together, then that really becomes an applied research problem. Mm -hmm. And that's how we explore new technology okay. and new integration. So I'll give you an example. Scott King uh, here uh, at the campus uh, was working with us on developing um, um, cameras on an aircraft in order to be able to sense other aircraft and then rapidly uh, identify possible threats wow. and then be autonomously, mm -hmm. right? Um, so we're working with him We're uh, on that. We have a graduate student, um, uh, Evan Crowell, who is helping him do that. Okay. And what we're doing is we're taking the spirals mm -hmm. that come out of that, integrating it onto our platforms, and then flying it to see how well does this technology work and then, more importantly, what are the kinds of information that you, you need to know to mm -hmm. do that? So, so that's an example. Yeah. Because we're a, a research university, that, that's an example of the applied research mm -hmm. that benefits the students, benefits the faculty, and then we're able to provide information back to the FAA and help develop standards. So that's kind of, kind of it in a, uh, in a, in a, in a nutshell. And I'm, I can even talk about other things because you've got me started. <laughs> I'm not sure well, people would be interested. I, I, I am personally very interested because I think I think the drones themselves are fascinating. And I, I don't want to use this as a drone as a pejorative in any sense. When we're talking about UAS and UAVs, that is planes, the helicopter looking things that look like helicopters but are small, that hobbyists fly. So what you guys are working on here at the Lone Star UAS, um, I'll, may I call this Mission Control? Sure. What y'all are working on here at Mission Control really has application from military applications to the extent that y'all operate within the DOD again, but also even down to the hobbyists because at some point the hobbyists are going to want to fly their little DJI helicopter drones beyond line of sight. Right. And so really right. the, the application of what you're working on here applies to individuals all the way up to um, emergency mission readiness type a things. Absolutely, absolutely. And so so um, one of the thing, I mean, one of the big things that w w we try to do is advance aeronautics research, education, research and development, uh, and innovation. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, we think the future is not only unmanned aircraft systems, but uh, autonomous aviation. Okay. Right. Mm -hmm. um, um, and what we find is the way that that's actually going to work is the the FAA is not going to drive innovation from the top down. Mm -hmm. It's going to be uh, driven from early adopters and innovators. So it's very right. much going to be a bottom up. Mm -hmm. So you know, think Amazon, think Uber. Uh, those are two big players. Think Google, mm -hmm. right? So what you have is this pressure of um, civil. Uh, 
civil uh, aviators or aviation or commercial companies mm -hmm. saying, we see a commercial application you for bet. this technology, FAA, help mm -hmm. us do it. Right. And the FAA is going, uh, um, well, it, it's a very large bureaucracy, mm -hmm. and in their defense, statutorily, Congress has said to them, you are chartered to ensure the safe uh, uh, regulation of flights in the United States as part of the Department of Transportation. Mm -hmm. And therefore, unmanned uh, aircraft flight must equal or exceed manned uh, flight. Okay. So that's a very, very, very high bar. Mm -hmm. And that's a that's kind of the example I was using with the DoD 5000. Right. And that's that that very rigorous testing mm -hmm. um, is what leads to 10 or 15 years to you know acquire the sure. next generation thing. So somewhat akin to the FDA and a new drug approval. Uh, the process, FDA right? or new drug uh, drug approval okay. process. However, you can always get a carve out. You can always get an exception. Right. You can always get a waiver, and that's where really we fall in mm -hmm. is within the following parameters. So. So part of the thing that we're all wrestling with are, um, so normally the, the drone, when you fly it, it's all what we call within visual line of sight, right. meaning that the, the remote pilot on the ground must see the aircraft at all times so that it can control it because the right-of-way rule, so to speak, if you're a sailor, mm -hmm. is a powered boat must always give way to a sailboat. Okay. In, in when you're, when you're a recreational mm -hmm. user. In our rule, the unmanned aircraft must always give way to the manned aircraft. And the paradigm is the pilot in command of a manned aircraft can see and detect uh, an obstacle mm -hmm. or a, 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 a possible thing to be avoided because he or she is in the platform flying the platform, right? So that standard of being able to detect and avoid, mm -hmm. or DAA, right? Um, is also applied to unmanned aircraft, but currently it's constrained by a lack of technology and the human and the human being. Mm -hmm. uh, the F, we all understand that we're going to have to be able to do beyond visual line That's of right. sight, right? And that means that the aircraft is operated outside of the visual uh, observation and detection of the pilot in mm -hmm. command. Well, there's a certain set of rules associated with how we're currently able to do that, but it's still limited to the physical observation. So we can do what is called extended visual line of sight, where you daisy chain visual observers, and as long as the pilot and all the visual observers at some point in time can mm -hmm. see the aircraft, you can get out a mile or two miles or even three miles. Well, that'll, that'll take us in a minute, and I'm, I'm I do want to explore that a little bit more, but in a minute we'll talk about what happened last August here in Corpus Christi, and is sure. that is that why there were stations set up all over the yes, place? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. So, so the capabilities here at the at the Lone Star UAS Mission Control, the your authorization is such that you can actually test, I'll say beyond at one individual's line of sight. Correct. Okay. So we in that particular case, we w we were not operating under our uh, certificate of uh, authorization rules. We were operating under something called Part One Hundred Seven. And that that's for um, that's for the use of air. Uh, it's a different uh, set of rules that okay. you have to comply with. And and the way that that works is you you ask for authorization, you explain to the FAA what it is that you're trying to do, the equipment that you're using, and how you're going to do it. 
and then they give you a waiver that says you can do it within the, the parameters. Okay. In that particular case, because we were operating in an urban setting mm -hmm. over people, right, right, right. and over uh, vehicles, we had to get a certain set of waivers, and uh, the, and we were able to do that. But the biggest thing was the safety mitigation. Mm -hmm. So the other part of that is, in the event of a catastrophic uh, event occurring, how do you mitigate any possible uh, side effects? And the mitigation, in essence, was. Uh, in order to ensure that no bad event will ever happen and that <laughs> no human will right. be harmed, the only way we're going to be able to do that is by removing uh, the humans who Correct. are not participants Correct. in the in the uh, test mm -hmm. off of the range. And so in that particular case, that's why we had to set up the traffic control points. Mm -hmm. Because the other thing is, is that you, you can operate over a stationary vehicle with people in it, but you can't operate over a moving vehicle with people uh, in it, okay. and that was that was just one of those rules, be, because the beca the likelihood of you know a catastrophic impact. Mm -hmm. You can if if you've got two moving objects, right? It's harder to control than when you only have one moving object. So that physics starts to really intervene yeah. at that point, I guess. Yeah. So what we found, so this is a very long way to say. It. So what we found is there's a lot of new technology mm -hmm. that's coming out that we haven't quite figured out how to integrate yet. Okay. Um, and so a big part of that is uh, detect and avoid mm -hmm. or surveillance, right? So how do you surveil the airspace to ensure that your platform is operating in a safe manner? Well, for manned flight, you have air traffic control. Correct. You have ground-based uh, radars. You have transponders in an aircraft that broadcast the name of the aircraft, mm -hmm. the, s the altitude, the speed. And it can say, here I am in relationship to somebody That's else, right? That's right? right. Uh, and ultimately, the pilot of that aircraft uh, ultimately has the responsibility mm -hmm. to take, take control of the aircraft and avoid other aircraft if that's what they need to do. So what we're trying to do with the small UASs is, is the same sort of thing, but remotely, mm -hmm. but, but really remotely, and in some cases, autonomously. Sure. How do you let the platform itself make these decisions. So how do you detect and mm -hmm. avoid? How do you sense your surroundings? How do you broadcast your relo right, location right. with other people as well? How do you file a flight plan? Mm -hmm. uh, and then how does the aircraft know how to react? And is that autonomous behavior certified as safe so exactly. that you have confidence to the 99.9999999. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's right. Nine, yes. six s exponential mm -hmm. six to nine powers, because that's the standard that we have to, okay. to achieve. Wow. So all those things are things that every one of us who operate in this community are trying to either create technologies, mm -hmm. evaluate technologies, develop community-based standards or consensus-based standards. And what the FAA will do is they'll sense what's going on with the community of users mm -hmm. and then say, okay, here is a rule for how we're going to do it. So, m so we have a notice to public rulemaking that mm -hmm. the FAA put out two months ago and that was for a remote ID standard. Okay, um, 
we cannot op, you know, so everybody knows of the transponder on mm -hmm. a man. We don't have transponders for unmanned aircraft, okay. right? And even if we did, we couldn't use that technology because what we, we can't interfere with the manned flight portion oh, wow. of it, right? Okay, so it's extra complicated. So what we did, la you know, for the TCL4 effort is we found something called FLARM, which is a Swiss-based technology that acts like uh, the, the transponder, mm -hmm. but on a different frequency and is only used for unmanned aircraft. Well, that's, that's a technology standard that is in Europe, mm -hmm. but it's not a universally adopted standard. So one of the things we were testing is, could that help us detect aircraft in the airspace and could the two things talk to each other okay. to help the pilots deconflict? Mm -hmm. So that's an example. So of the two things talking to each other in that in that scenario, though, are manned and unmanned, or it was or two, it was unmanned two, and whatever. It was two unmanned aircraft okay. talking to each other, and then relaying that information to the pilots who were controlling the aircraft. Okay. And one of the scenarios we forced a conflict mm -hmm. with these two FLARM-equipped aircraft, where they came in, because the other thing is you have to maintain a well-clear standard. We violated that well mm -hmm. clear standard, but in a safe way, right? And yep, they were able to detect. Yep, they were able to see that they had violated their their well clear. And yes, both of the aircraft were able to execute their pre-planned avoidance technique, awesome. right? Uh, automatically, mm -hmm. right? Um, or the pilots were able to then take control of the automated flight plan and mm -hmm. then execute their. Con maintain their well clear standard, for example. So, so, so that that's kind of the exciting mm -hmm. stuff. That Absolutely. We do. So that that's what's happening in the world today. Mm -hmm. And so to kind of paint the picture, you know, um, as part of what we were looking at, the FAA back in two thousand and eight um, said that there was uh, there were almost uh, two hundred and almost two hundred and eighty thousand. Uh, not small, non-model UAS uh, in use in commercial operations. Mm -hmm. And small means 55 pounds or below. Okay. okay? Uh, so we measure in weight, not necessarily in size? Weight, not necessarily in size, okay. yeah. Uh, and that has to do with the uh, kinetic impact of the vehicle. And, and that's a whole other discussion. <laughs> and that's another whole okay. part of what the <laughs> system is that we need to talk about. But yeah, 55 pounds or below, mm -hmm. right? Uh, well, they expect that to be almost uh, 850,000 in 2023, and that's wow. just that's just commercial use. Mm -hmm. So that is the realtor uh, filming uh, property. Right. Okay. That is uh, a power company uh, doing visual inspection of power lines, mm -hmm. for example. Uh, that's the water company trying to detect a leak. That that's just, you know, that's the fire department and the police department. That's before we do Uber Eats, who sure. are, who's going to deliver your, your Pizza Hut box, mm -hmm. right. you know, the last <laughs> package right. And that's before Uber or Lyft or starts doing the mm -hmm. unmanned aerial taxis. And, and I say that because that's kind of the, the what next. Mm -hmm. so, so, so let me talk about NASA for a little bit. Yes, so please. So NASA, well, what I tell everybody is the first day in NASA is aeronautics, right? Mm -hmm. So the National Aeronautics Space Administration, right? There are, I think, and I think there are nine uh, test centers uh, for NASA. Four of those, Glenn, Langley, uh, Armstrong, and Ames, are actually aeronautics centers of, of research. Okay. NASA is 
funded to do aeronautics research mm -hmm. as well. On so if the FAA is kind of the regulatory body, NASA ends up being the experimental mm -hmm. uh, body that helps create technologies and, and do the research. So oftentimes you'll see NASA and the FAA and the test sites working together. Okay. And we had just completed the five-year UAS traffic management mm -hmm. experiment, and now we're moving on to the next thing. And the next thing that NASA is doing is something called Urban Air Mobility uh, Grand Challenge, or Advanced Air Mobility, okay. right? And what that is, is specific to cargo delivery and passenger delivery mm -hmm. in urban settings, right? Uh, and what are the possible use cases? So for example, um, the, the NASA's gonna hold a developmental test at Armstrong, which is, um, Edwards Air Force okay. Base in California. Kern County, right? <laughs> Same you county bet. as Bakersfield, uh -huh. so bet. it's in the San Joaquin Valley mm -hmm. uh, next year. Okay. I, I, well, yeah, next year, okay. right? And then two years later, they want to do uh, Grand Challenge 1, which, uh, and then Grand Challenge 2 and Grand Challenge 3. Well, Grand Challenge 3, ultimately, they want to do it in an urban market, mm -hmm. and the two urban markets they've identified is Dallas and Los Angeles, Wow. right? And so we're currently working with NASA and we're doing kind of that thought piece mm -hmm. stuff uh, where we've, we're writing a report and we're, we're in the, we submitted the first half on the 1st of April. We have to give them the final report on the 15th of April. And they had developed seven use cases for how they would use urban air mobility. And we've subdivided that into, I think, 42 wow. specific mm -hmm. examples of how we would do that. And and that's the other piece is, and we didn't do that alone, we did that in cooperation with the state of Texas. We, 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 mm -hmm. put, a, we put a survey on a, one on a website and asked people to talk about mm -hmm. it. Um, we involve community involvement as well, uh, because that's gonna be ac community Absolutely. acceptance. Sure. It's not just the technology of the platform, which is one mm -hmm. area. It's not just the ecosystem and how do you test and create the supporting technologies. That's another mm -hmm. uh, line of effort within this. But the third one is really community community acceptance, um, rules, regulation. I'm concerned about privacy. I'm concerned mm -hmm. about noise. I, and, and really, NASA's approach, and I think it's a great approach, is they're trying to address all three simultaneously. Mm -hmm. uh, and and we, we even tried to do that when we were doing the TCL4 event back in August. Uh, we had to get, um, we had to get approvals, mm -hmm. right, to do human subjects testing. But basically we were asking the community to fill out a survey mm -hmm. um, and people participated voluntarily. And we, pr we did analysis and provided that back to not only NASA but the FAA as well. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, it revalidated the areas of concern that we had identified five years ago remain valid. Right. Um, and we're kind of, you know, we're all trying to figure out what's the best way, mm -hmm. you know, what's the best way to uh, address those. And I'll, right. you know, privacy is an example, right? I know that the FAA has way things that are doing. I know the state of Texas is looking mm -hmm. at, I mean, they have privacy laws specific to how you use drones and what the carve-outs are for those sort of things as well. And that's important. Absolutely. I mean, that is. is absolutely important because without social acceptance mm -hmm. of a technology, you know, it doesn't matter. You know, 
And, and what am I talking about? The internet and cell phones, right? Correct. You know, at first that was kind of a niche thing that some, and then it was, okay, here's what we think it's going to be. Mm -hmm. And then it was, oh my goodness, nobody thought that you would ever be able to put an app on the phone, mm -hmm. right? That's right. And all that is really uh, driven by entrepreneurs and, and I, and, and I guess that's really the why corpus, right? Mm -hmm. Part of this as well is um, while, while we know what the state of the art of the possible is uh, for cargo delivery and, and things like that, the, what it looks like they're going to do because it's really the easiest and safest is, um, so this artificial restriction of below 55, we've busted that, okay. right? I we, would imagine, we've yeah. broken that. Mm -hmm. Everybody's talking about how do you do true beyond visual line of sight. Uh, you have to involve the FCC mm -hmm. because it's spectrum management. You wow. have to talk about the reliability. You can't have a dropped call. That's right. Right, when you're trying to control an aircraft. Sure. Or if you do have a dropped call, you have to have a redundant mm -hmm. communications channel to make sure that uh, you can safely retrieve the sure, aircraft. Because a drop call means a crash, and it, there's it, a way to recover. Well, it could, and okay. so for example, a dropped call, for example, uh, you know, one of the redundant things that uh, we had to do, right, is mm -hmm. if the pilot lost command, uh, if the secondary uh, safety pilot mm -hmm. lost command and couldn't assume control, if uh, the aircraft would generally hover right, until the comms was reestablished, okay. or uh, it would follow a predetermined uh, return to base or return to land, That's mm -hmm. a, that was a safety thing that we were, and the return to base would be, it would simply retrack, okay. retrace the route that it had mm -hmm. flown previously, or it would take the most direct flight to its designated safe mm -hmm. landing zone. You know, the th uh, and that was actually something we looked at because we knew we were going to have EMI interference as we flew downtown and next to buildings and so. EMI is? Uh, electromagnetic interference. Okay. Uh, so it was the microwave towers mm -hmm. on top of the buildings. It, but the other thing is we were trying to, to use the kind of the LTE or the 5G mm -hmm. stuff to figure that out as well. So, so those are, that's another thing, you know, that's why it's a system, sure. a systems approach. Secure communication mm -hmm. is its own lane. And we're, and we're, and so that's something that we need to do as well. But we do know that we, we're gonna, we're gonna have to do beyond visual line of sight. We know right. we're gonna have to do over the horizon, mm -hmm. you know, curvature of the earth sort of stuff. So how do you guarantee that you're gonna have communications with that as well? Do you use relay towers? Mm -hmm. Do you use satellites? Do you do both? What do you do? What's the safety case for lost comms link? You know, what sure. will the aircraft do automatically? What is it, you know, is it safe to do uh, automatically until mm -hmm. you can reestablish that? And, and those are all, you know, you have to have empirical based test standards to do all that. And some of that is just we're helping develop what those empirical based right. standards are for doing that sort of stuff. So that we can provide that back to the FAA and say, okay, here here's an example, right? And mm -hmm. uh, you know, statistical sampling, right, n equals one is not right. a valid sample size. You can do small, I did a little bit of, <laughs> I had to do my own analysis, <laughs> right, right, as part of my master's. Of course. So, 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 and so that's us, that's the six other test sites mm -hmm. as well. That's, you know, private entities doing that as okay. well. And then, so leaping back to air taxi. So, mm -hmm. what so, so what I think is going to happen is they're going to take the man flight standards Right, so, um, and then it'll be an optionally manned aircraft, mm -hmm. right? 
and then it'll be uh, and then it'll be an onboard for safety, but remotely controlled aircraft. Okay. Right. And then there'll be this leap, and then it'll be a true remotely piloted aircraft. And as soon as they go to that true remotely mm -hmm. piloted aircraft, we now leap from manned flight into unmanned flight, and that's a different set of rules. But it's going to be this manned flight mm -hmm. rules probably for the next couple of years, and as we understand, you know, and as we can work safely from what are the tools, what are the technologies that we need to mm -hmm. operate safely in the manned flight realm, can we then cross that barrier into the unmanned flight realm? And then once, we, once we've done that and we've proven, um, we've proven that we can operate the aircraft and the systems mm -hmm. safely, accurately, reliably, then what you're going to see is these uh, one-off permissions from the FAA become uh, a license. M so like United Airlines has mm -hmm. an operations license to operate aircraft within the parameters of the FAA. Sure. Same thing's going to happen to uh, these the, the unmanned aircraft. Mm -hmm. and, and that's a business model, sure. right? So does Uber own the aircraft that it that it flies, mm -hmm. or does it, you know, is it a... Is right. Uh, is it Mesa flying a American Eagle right. or whatever? Or, or is, <laughs> it a, is it a franchisee? Because okay. I guess that's the current business model mm -hmm. now is their drivers are franchisees, that's right. right? For Amazon, yeah. Well, who has the liability? Uber. Who has the responsibility for ensuring mm -hmm. safety, maintenance, all that other stuff, right? Uh, we, we, we just don't know yet, but that's a business model decision that will be commercially driven, mm -hmm. not necessarily... Uh, up your, uh, somebody in the Department of Transportation okay. or the FAA saying you must. Mm -hmm. They'll say this const you know, this constitute uh, certification, the safe certification mm -hmm. of an aircraft for operation, right? Right. And that's a standard we're developing as well. Mm -hmm. But it'll st it'll be a commercial ad adopter, and then it'll be somebody who says, okay, well, I've got a technology that makes it better, faster, quicker, cheaper, and that's where that innovation cycle is going to kick in. So, and then, so the other part of what we're trying to do as well is, because we have this education function, but we also have um, a community engagement, community right. development function. So part of the reason why I'm even talking with you <laughs> now, right, <laughs> is part of my job is to try to do community engagements as well and, and do outreach. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and that, you know, one of the big lessons learned from last August was the impact of our testing on the community. Um, and it, and you know, I think we did a really good faith effort to get the word out and engage the community. And quite frankly, um, even though we, you know, we had the um, uh, community meeting mm -hmm. on the campus, even though we had advertised with news releases, even though we had worked with the park, mm -hmm. uh, you know, on park closings, even though. Uh, Joe Henry and I walked downtown <laughs> and tried to engage every individual right, business right. owner. Inevitably, mm -hmm. we caused uh, disruption to people's lives and that had an impact. Sure. Inevitably, we would have people come up to us and ask us what was going on. Mm -hmm. I mean, it w um, I mean, I, I donned a vest right. myself and stood on the corner and talked to people and listened to what their concerns were, mm -hmm. but also, uh, you know, um, uh, explain to them what was going on, right. and even though, we, so so, all we knew that in community engagement was going to be a critical component mm -hmm. of it. We tried to address it, but we found out that even the action plans that we had put in place 
uh, preemptively to make sure that we were getting the word out prove not to be 100% right. successful. And that's always going to be the case. Of course, of course. But I tell you what, we learned a tremendous amount of information about that and that really has influenced how we do things in mm -hmm. the future because we will come back to downtown Corpus Christi again and we will come back and do the operations because it's important, right? Absolutely. And they're not going to start in Dallas on Grand Challenge 1. As a matter of fact, we want them to come back mm -hmm. and do some of the testing in Corpus Christi again, um, but but uh, and include community involvement. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's it's going to be a big thing, and we're going to have to reach out and, and right. do a much better job. The other thing, though, I think is really exciting. Uh, we couldn't have done the the TCL four effort without the community support. Mm -hmm. You know, we had the port, we had the fire department, right. we had the police department, the city council, the airport. And what that does is that actually makes Corpus Christi attractive, mm -hmm. right? And it uh, because I think that helps people realize that, you know, Corpus Christi isn't this sleepy little um, that's right uh, vacation town mm -hmm. on the coastal bend. It is actually a vibrant part of the innovation process that's, that's right. going on. And the other thing that we're finding is although you know everybody thinks of IT in Austin or San mm -hmm. Antonio. And that golden triangle That's between right. <laughs> you know between Houston, uh -huh. San Antonio, Austin, and Dallas, Fort Worth, the Brazos Valley. Um, that that you know that's where the population density mm -hmm. is. As we're looking at now, um, you know you you can do a lot of that work remotely or in a different location, mm -hmm. or you can go some other places. And you know what? It take instead of having to drive an hour and a half into the Pentagon one mm -hmm. way, and I had to leave at 5.30 in oh the gosh. morning, right? And I would leave work at no 7 o'clock and get home at 8.30. Mm -hmm. I leave my apartment, I get in my car, I drive to work, mm -hmm. and I'm in my office in 15 minutes. And it's 18 minutes if I stop at the Starbucks That's right. and Staples <laughs> and SBID That's right. ordering ahead, right? Yes. So there's something to be said for a quality of life that, uh, that that enables that. And then the other thing that uh, you know we we're trying to work or we do work with the uh, Coastal Bend Innovation mm -hmm. Center. So Russell downstairs and Dean Gamble in the business office to help you know facilitate incubate. We work with the Economic Development Authority, mm -hmm. Tommy Kratz. We're working with him to help highlight these UAS and technology companies. Um, that we work with mm -hmm. and, and um, basically help them understand why Corpus Christi is an attractive place to come mm -hmm. to and be. And so, uh, you know, like I said, we work with Tommy all the time where we've, we've been able to identify what we think are uh, great technology companies, broker the conversation where then Tommy can talk to the company, and we have one in particular that we're talking with right now, and Tommy can talk about the economic incentives mm -hmm. of companies relocating uh, or having a soft landing that they can come to. So, that, so that's something that we're, we're trying to do as mm -hmm. well. Understanding the education component pieces of it, you know, we're going to need mechanics, right. AMP mechanics, to operate, that's to right. maintain the aircraft, right? And so just like you need an automotive mechanic, mm -hmm. you're going to need a, a UAS uh, AMP mechanics. Absolutely. You're going to have technology people who need to be able to work on the comms, mm -hmm. right? That's right. Um, and it's not, and, and 
and at some point in time, you're going to want a local merchant to be able to provide those services to you because you don't want to have to go to Dallas. That's you right. don't want to have to go to. You don't want to have to ship this thing off that's and right. then say come back. So I think that's where the small businesses are going to begin to mm -hmm. thrive. And then if you have, you know, uh, you, if you have a bright idea that says, here's how I can marry uh, a camera mm -hmm. with an algorithm that helps me do change detection, so I can see, yes, this is normal, or no, it's Correct. not. Um, and then, you know, it really doesn't matter where you do that, mm -hmm. and so why not? you know, do it here in, in Corpus that's Christi right. in the coastal bend. So that's a that's another th that's another piece mm -hmm. excuse me, of what I think our mission is. Because we're not only a test site, mm -hmm. we're we're all members of the university here in Corpus Christi. So I'm not faculty but I'm staff, right? right? And my boss is the vice president of research and innovation, mm -hmm. Dr. Ahmed Mahdi, right? And I don't report to a dean uh, who's focused on uh, academic excellence and, and educating students, I, I'm working for the guy whose job it is to help format mm -hmm. and, and uh, sponsor applied research and, and, you know, using what the faculty is already doing. And I really need to pause and talk about my vision and students as okay. well because everything that we do, we do uh, with the idea that Part of my job is to help ensure that students are successful. Mm -hmm. um, I'll use TCL4 as an example. Again, we couldn't have made that happen without the almost three dozen students Correct. who were part of the process to help us do that. Mm -hmm. When I came on board, we had one student. We have oh. over a dozen student interns working with us. So we, we're a small organization. We have less than, uh, I, think I, I think I'm at 21 staff, okay. myself included right now. I have a dozen students, mm -hmm. three graduate students, uh, nine undergraduate students, right? The graduate students are doing uh, applied research projects. Mm -hmm. I talked about Evan right. a little bit. He's a computer scientist. He's helping develop algorithm for change detection using a camera. Awesome. I've got uh, another guy who is the geospatial information system sure, working, sure. Uh, and he's helping us do um, the integration of uh, so the other thing we do is we actually have a public safety mm -hmm. uh, mission that right. we do. Uh, Ty Payne, who's my program director for operations, is actually my public safety point. We're part of Texas Task Force mm -hmm. One, the, the, the Emergency Management Response Force. So what we can do is we can augment fire and police mm -hmm. during emergencies like we did at Harvey, fly our drones to help either do rescue or recovery. That's right. Right, basically mapping of damage, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. So we, we have so we have a public, so we have a public safety function. We right. have an applied research <coughs> support function, mm -hmm. and then we also have a student success function. And those are the three legs mm -hmm. that that I judge myself on. So students. So I have you know. So I have students. I have over a dozen students working in here. Um, Natalia Minking is my psychology, right? Awesome. And it's not just it's not just computer science mm -hmm. and engineering. Uh, and that's the other thing being a history major has done for me is told me the importance of having multifunctional absolutely teams true huddle around mm -hmm. a problem and figure out how to do it. So Natalia is actually a clinical psychologist. She's awesome. graduating, but she led my human factors team 
mm -hmm. the TCL4 and continues to do uh, my human factor stuff now, so cognitive mm -hmm. psychology, right? She's in charge of two undergraduates, right? And that's my little research mm -hmm. team, and she's working with a professor on campus. Well, one of the projects we're working on is what's the cognitive load on an operator who needs to do change detection, wow. right? Okay. We worked with and we worked with Burlington Northern, mm -hmm. right? That's an example of this private partnership. Uh, we worked with Burlington Northern, and they very generously gave us five thousand a five thousand picture data set. Golly, uh, and it's railroad tracks, mm -hmm. right? And they have a big problem on change detection because of warpage on, on a railroad track. Mm -hmm. So what we're in the process of doing, the experiment is okay. If you had to look at 5,000 pictures, your head would explode. Absolutely true. Right? Posit that you have a change detection software mm -hmm. that my software developers are actually Correct. writing, <laughs> right? Correct. Using this data set. Uh -huh. uh, and that's another graduate student mm -hmm. <laughs> or undergraduate student who is going to be coming back as a graduate student. Uh, that you could do an algorithm to do change detection mm -hmm. that could identify what it considers to be. Um, a change with, mm -hmm. you know, so before and after. Right, kind right. of a variable from the norm or something. Yeah, yeah, okay. how many, right? And so some of those are going to be false positives, mm -hmm. some of those are going to be negatives where it didn't detect, and then it's going to say, so if, if even if it's a subset of 10%, right? We don't know what the standard mm -hmm. is, but say it's 10%, right? So now, so I hate to do public math, but I think that's <laughs> 500, <laughs> right? So now I have 500 images that a human being is going to have to now mm -hmm. look at and figure it out. Well, what we're trying to figure out is, well, what's the load? Sure. How many of those can be seen in 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 right. minutes? How do you how do you figure out the accuracy of mm -hmm. that? Does it diminish over time? Are you going to false positive yourself? Are you going to negative, false mm -hmm. negative, and not detect something, or, or detect something as a change that isn't? Mm -hmm. Are you going to miss something right. where it actually was a change and for whatever you missed it? Well. Um, you know, the exciting thing is, theoretically, we'll be able to run an, an experiment, mm -hmm. right? And and again, it gets back, and we're going to have to do this a number of times. Sure, sure. But uh, some some professor will be able to publish. Some student will be able to put that on the CV mm -hmm. that they co-wrote. You know, that could be either a master's thesis or a PhD dissertation sure. for somebody. But really, more importantly, uh, and this gets back to what I did when I was in graduate school, uh, I worked in uh, an Army research lab for 18 months when I was in graduate school. Okay. Um, the Army paid me to go to school, so I'd take classes at mm -hmm. night, and during the day I worked in a, as a volunteer, as an unpaid student, <laughs> in a research lab, awesome. and I, I created my own experiment, but I worked with engineers because mm -hmm. we, we were trying to advance this future army concept on what does a command and control vehicle look like. Mm -hmm. And because I was the experimentation officer, we built a mock-up of the vehicle. And I was primarily concerned with the operator, the, mm -hmm. the ro robotics operator, both manned and unmanned. Okay. And that, that's what I did in my thesis experimentation. Well, in order to do that, I had to create an environment. Sure. We had to create a mock-up, you know. But the research lab was they then able to say, okay, here's a quote-unquote operationally mm -hmm. relevant mock-up, and then we understand what the operational right, environment right. is, because they're engineers. They're just, they're just going to build to a spec, right? Sure. 
Well, I want to provide the same opportunity for my students, mm -hmm. right? So the undergraduates come in, you know, we model good behavior, you know, this is what it looks like to, to, right. to be an adult and mm -hmm. work in a business environment. Uh, we, we model the kind of behavior that we need them to do. Mm -hmm. We make them part of the team, we assign them tasks, and we hold them accountable for awesome. it. What we try to do is marry up what they're learning in the classroom and mm -hmm. give them a practical application in a safe, operationally relevant environment. Mm -hmm. Ideally, some tasks that we give them to do that could be a, a project, I'm always telling my students, look, if you have a senior project or a, a, a honors thesis sure. that you want to do, come to us, use us as a lab, mm -hmm. and let us go ahead and figure out what that is, because the I still, I mean, I graduated in 2000, 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. I still remember, and it has real resonance for me, the stuff that I was doing in a lab, because where else are you going to have an opportunity to explore? Because really, we're a laboratory That's for right. these students to take advantage right. of, right? And so we've got some other things that are underway that I'm hoping then will bring people mm -hmm. uh, out to the bluff, out to our building, and and um, you know, uh, so that we can then open up to the community to include the high schools mm -hmm. as well. Opportunities to do things with drones uh, or write programming or mm -hmm. things that we currently can't do because we don't have the infrastructure and capability. We've got a plan in place to build that infrastructure mm -hmm. and capability. I'm keeping my fingers <laughs> crossed. I don't want to jinx it because right. we've been, I've been, I've been working on it for the 18 months that I've been here. Okay. We'll announce it when it, it'll be a big deal when we announce mm -hmm. it. But what we think that'll then provide is an opportunity, because we do outreach STEM events to you the bet. high schools as well, where we can invite people in and say, okay, come to our lab facility mm -hmm and do hands-on right. stuff. Design, you know, design, here, here are the components mm -hmm. of what a, a drone is, right? You have to have sure. a power source, you have to have an engine, you have to have an airframe that is aeronauti mm -hmm. aeronautically uh, sufficient to right, allow you flies. to operate. <laughs> you have to have some kind of propeller system. Uh -huh. Generally, those are electronic motors. Build one. Right. Right? Kind of like a three-day startup or a startup yeah. weekend challenge or right. something. Uh, oh, exactly, yeah. right? We've got 3D printers, all mm -hmm. right? So draw the CAD design and then we'll print it and then assemble it and then test it, right? That's awesome, that'd right? be so exciting. And if you're, if you're, a, you know, if you're a, a young person who is just understanding the art of the possible or what's mm -hmm. capable, right? Well, why, you know, why wouldn't you do that? Well, most of those are, and that's, that's, that's a kind of a scientific field, but it's like, so why can't we do that with the mechanics, right? Because right? I, I have AMP mechanics, mm -hmm. right? Um, let let me show you what. Here's how you do a. Here's how you do an electrical test mm -hmm. of a wiring harness, right? I mean, you do it for what automotives. Why wouldn't right. you do it for? You, you're going to have to do it for aircraft Absolutely. as well, right? So, so we're hoping to be able to do that within the next year or two years. That'd be as very well. exciting, and for that's sure. and yeah, that would be so exciting, and that's. And again, and um, and the other thing is, is that generally speaking, we have mild weather, mm -hmm. you know, right. in, the, in the fall <laughs> and winter. In the summertime, we have some pretty harsh conditions, yeah. right? Um, and and um, you know, sea salt corrosion, you right? Unintended consequences, yeah. right? But uh, uh, high humidity, mm -hmm. high heat, winds. 
those are all uh, environments mm -hmm. that are need are going to have to be that, that will be. You're going to have to address that and solve that. Absolutely. If you're going to deliver pizzas yes. in Corpus Christi, right? Right. Or anywhere else where there's wind. Or anywhere sure. else where there's wind and high humidity right. and, and high temperatures, mm -hmm. right? Any coastal area, right? That you can that you can think of. Well, and so even in a even in a Dallas, I mean, Dallas yeah. is up there on the plains, and it gets windy, and it certainly gets hot with all the asphalt and. Um, yeah. I'll say this gently, yeah. all the egos. Um, but you know, it, it, what we can do here in Corpus is put these uh, systems through some environmental rigors that might not be available in other test sites. Well, exactly, and, and that's the beauty of the collaborative uh, relationship. We, I'll be the first, when, when I have a customer come to me with a research need, mm -hmm. if I don't think I can fill it, I'll direct them someplace okay. else, you know, for example, if you've got, if you, you know, I'll, I'll send them to New York or North, North Dakota, for example. Uh, both of those sites have fixed infrastructure. Mm -hmm. You know, they've spent, you know, millions of dollars to create. And what, what that allows them to do is do tr true beyond visual line of sight using ground-based detect and avoid radar mm -hmm. so that the FAA will give them a waiver to do that okay. kind of stuff, right? Um, over, you know, non-populated right. farmlands, <laughs> exactly. right? You know, open where, spaces. where <laughs> wide open spaces, right. right? Or in New York, where you've got tall granite mountains, and mm -hmm. if you want to do that, where there's snow on the ground four months out of the year. You can go up to Alaska, sure. for example, and do that in Alaska. We don't, I can't do that. We can't I'm, provide that environment. I, I can't right. provide that environment for you. But what I, you know, but what I can do, for example, is if you need kind of hot or humid or mm -hmm. whatever, then come to this operational environment where it's relevant for what, because what's going to happen is as part of the certification process, mm -hmm. if you say your aircraft can go from minus 20 degrees to 100 degrees right. and 100% or 90% humidity, you're going to have to demonstrate that it can Absolutely. operate reliably at mm -hmm. minus 20 degrees and 100 degrees, 90% humidity. And there's actually a risk-based model of how many flight hours need to be mm -hmm. associated against a particular platform. And part of that problem is the density of population within so many square right. miles. And it doesn't come as a surprise to anybody. The more dense the population, the more reliability mm -hmm. and the number of hours you have to have of safe flight sure. without incidents, without a major configuration mm -hmm. of the platform. Because that's the other thing is that if you, if you change something in the aircraft that changes its the way it its aerodynamic stability, mm -hmm. generally adding payloads and things right. like that, and that payload is integral to the safe functioning of the system. Mm -hmm. You've just reset your clock to That's zero. Right. You basically yeah. created a new system. Yeah. Well, you've created a new. Yeah. You've you've created a new system, and mm -hmm. you have to validate. Yeah. So let's let's take a minute, Mike, to talk about. Um, what TCL4 was and what the lessons learned from those testings back in August of 2019, what they mean for both drone operators and commercialization opportunities and so forth. Sure, so, um, so NASA um, created opportunities for all the UAS test sites to work with them on what they, what was UAS traffic management. Okay. Um, at the time, th it was a, it was a concept, mm -hmm. and it, um, and there were four events. Okay. Uh, 
and one, two, three, and four, and technology capability level one, two, three, okay. and four, right? And they basically started out with um, a single aircraft saying, okay, how would we manage drone traffic? Mm -hmm. As simple as that. Okay. Because there is no technology. Right. <laughs> right, there is exactly. No, there, uh, and so this was an example, uh, uh, and then, so NASA awarded this work, it was mm -hmm. five years work, and you know, over five years there were four experiments. They also started working with commercial companies, mm -hmm. and these were the UAS uh, service suppliers. These were the companies that were actually writing the traffic management mm -hmm. software, and then what the test sites were doing were either flying the aircraft, actually at one point we actually wrote some traffic mm -hmm. management software right. as well, but very quickly we were overcome by these uh, commercial service mm -hmm. providers uh, who could do it better. So TCL4 was the culmination mm -hmm. of this event, and what they did is they moved it from rural and remote to urban. Right. And the requirement from NASA was to do five scenarios involving uh, eight live aircraft and 15 simulated aircraft within an urban setting. Mm -hmm. um, and, the, and how they defined urban. Um, and this was the first time that there was a major test this large mm -hmm. in an urban setting. So in other words, there were one or twos but never uh, on the scale. That's right. Of the seven FAA test sites that bid, two were awarded. Mm -hmm. One was us and the other was the Nevada test site in Reno. And uh, ultimately when Nevada, and Nevada and Lone Star, you know, we, we took two different approaches mm -hmm. and in part that is based on, uh, we're a research university, right. Nevada was an economic development agency okay. for the state. We were able to do our own integration because mm -hmm. of our software uh, developers and our engineers in uh, Nevada basically integrated other people's technologies. Okay. Right. So that was the first thing. The second thing was it was so complex that NASA basically said of the five scenarios that you're running, we want to gather data, but we understand if you don't. Nevada was able to execute three of the five scenarios mm -hmm. successfully. We were able to do all five. Awesome. We generated over nine million bits of data that had wow. to have been collected. Mm -hmm. And I know it's nine million <laughs> because uh, Luis Hernandez, our, our engineer mm -hmm. who was responsible for the data management plan, had to manage that thing wow. uh, daily. It was super complex. Mm -hmm. Never in the history of the FAA had we ha had we conducted an operation where you had eight aircraft operating simultaneously mm -hmm. within 400 feet uh, within a quarter mile of wow. each other. that's incredible. Never had we integrated uh, unmanned traffic management into live airspace. Mm -hmm. In other words, we were flying adjacent to the airport out in Corpus Christi. That's right. Right? And we had to be able to integrate into the approval process in order to do that. Never happened mm -hmm. in history before. Um, and so we were the first, quite frankly, and uh, we were the only place mm -hmm. that was able to do that. And so for Corpus Christi, and it garnered not only national but international press coverage exactly. and recognition, mm -hmm. 
uh, during that two-week event in August, you know, and we had the prep event in July, but during that two-week event in August, we had over 100 visitors mm -hmm. come to Corpus Christi and stay. And I know there's an economic model that says for every dollar spent, there's an eight to ten dollar impact right. in the community. Mm -hmm. uh, so imagine a hundred people, you know, and some of those people were brought here by us to participate. Mm -hmm. They were put up in the Omni Hotel, and they were here for uh, uh, fourteen days, mm -hmm. right? And I so that's you, awesome. Yeah, and so there was that kind of spillover economic mm -hmm. impact. Well, the reason that that was important is is that. We, we now helped NASA prove UAS traffic management. Mm -hmm. Which UAS traffic management, is that somewhat akin to what air traffic control does yeah. with manned flight? Okay. Well, it is, it, it, it's similar to what air traffic control does, but the big distinction, in that you have to fly all the flight plan yeah. and on all that, but the big distinction is, is that the FAA, the air traffic controllers, are actually controlling the flight. Mm -hmm. Take off, land, fly, report your position, divert, right? Well, what's going to happen with unmanned uh, aircraft is the operator themselves will have to file their flight plan mm -hmm. and monitor its execution. And, and at least right now, um, the concept is under development is that uh, I, as an individual operator, will be responsible to talk to every other individual operator mm -hmm. flying a drone. Well, that's that's many to many, right? right? And, and, and insanely inefficient. Insane. <laughs> so we all recognize that some concept needs to be developed, and we talk we talk about it in terms of this notion of a dispatch center or a traffic control mm -hmm. center. Well, that's a big thing that we're going to be experimenting with for the next couple of years. And that's where this uh, air mobility challenge with NASA mm -hmm. comes in, uh, start. And then the second thing is we're already working with the uh, FAA on, on what next. And the what next is twofold. How do you develop the ecosystem that allows you to safely integrate mm -hmm. everything that you need to integrate so that unmanned flight equals or exceeds manned flight? And we're having to create that. Right. So that's one big thrust, and then the second big thrust, and the so what is, and then how do you integrate the manned and the unmanned together, mm -hmm. right? And the way, they're, and they're always going to need an operationally relevant test environment, mm -hmm. i.e. an urban area, and so what I think is going to happen is we're going to end up coming back to Corpus Christi again to have to do these kind of testings, mm -hmm. because you want to do it in a relatively complex air environment uh, because we have to de-conflict between the Naval Air Station, mm -hmm. the Coast Guard, commercial traffic at right. the airport, and then the unmanned uh, stuff as well. Mm -hmm. We've got critical infrastructure, the port. Right. So there are all these things that are can be a microcosm mm -hmm. of the whole that Corpus Christi is unique, and the Coastal Bend really right. is unique in offering uh, and so, and we've got some of the OEMs like Bell mm -hmm. uh, in the in the Dallas Fort Worth area. So what we we think that there's just going to be a natural attraction, and people are going to want to come. Mm -hmm. The other part of that is, I th as we do more robust testing and add more rigor. Well, you know, Bell doesn't need us to doesn't need us to help them run a test. Right. But if you're a small a developer of a commercial technology, you don't have the infrastructure mm -hmm. that you need. So what we would we would say is, come on down to us, come be with us, mm -hmm. and we'll help you run a rigorous test that you can provide data back to whomever. 
mm -hmm. and from a business case, you don't have to build the infrastructure, you just come to where the right. infrastructure is. So, and in order to do that, we're talking months of testing, mm -hmm. we think the natural outgrowth will be, well then people will relocate sure. here in temporary offices, and then once you've done that temporarily, then I think the second, third order effect will be the growth associated with it, because mm -hmm. if you're doing rapid prototyping, and spiral development of capabilities, right. you're going to look for those resources to help you do that mm -hmm. locally, or you're going to transplant it locally. Right. Because at some point, you're not going to want to have to do telework and reach back. Mm -hmm. You're going to want the team to be available. Absolutely. So I think that's the thought, or I know that's the thought, mm -hmm. the idea of being able to draw technology companies in. I mean, it kind of brings to mind what Hewlett Packard did with Silicon Valley. You know, people may or may not know, but 60 years ago, there was a little chip guy in a garage, mm -hmm. and now we have Silicon Valley. And what happened, at least to some extent, that caused this massive growth over there was the, the folks that needed to use the semiconductors were able to come to where Hewlett Packard was once the guys got out of the garage and got into a commercial space, and it created this whole new ecosystem. And here, we're very likely to create, if I can call it, the drone coast or something like that, right? Where people have to come to Corpus or get to come to Corpus to test their commercial technology even if they are a Bell helicopter, they may still need to come here because we have, through the Lone Star UAS and y'all here, the, the approvals necessary from the regulatory folks to do some of the testing that Bell may or may not be able to do in the DFW area. Right, you know, no, exactly, and, that, and that's really the vision. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we've, we've got a little roadmap that you know, I've, I've kind of outlined with my <laughs> team where I want to be right. in 2023, for example, and, um, and Part of that really is uh, this notion of creating a dispatch center. Mm -hmm. So uh, what I want to do is, is create a mock-up or a reconfigurable dispatch center, mm -hmm. you know, be able to do kind of the cognitive testing, be able to check, take a look at new technologies. Mm -hmm. And what I'm talking about is beginning that capability now and really by September of next year have an initial operating awesome. capability. Mm -hmm. uh, then I think the next step after that is kind of a full operational capability which includes the integration of manned with unmanned. Sure. So okay. we're going to have to work with the FAA to do mm -hmm. that. And then once once we build this capability, I mean it's a it's a it's a test artifact mm -hmm. that people can then come and use because now once you build it, then we're going to have to demonstrate multiple means of flying mm -hmm. that. And so hand in hand with that is getting the authority to do drone operations in an urban environment mm -hmm. within the city. And maybe it's, you know, I don't know, maybe it's uh, some um, grocery delivery firm wanting to actually deliver groceries, for example. Uh, and where better than to do that than a small segment mm -hmm. of Corpus Christi, for example. And then in 2023, the big thing is um, aircraft manufacturers or the small drone, UA, th th they're Need, there is, we're in the process of creating with the FAA a certification process. Mm -hmm. And so being able to do that here um, is going to be a big thing. And then also, uh, you know, the, the component pieces of that. Sure. So whether it's manufacturing mm -hmm. the component pieces or whether it's testing the integration right. or providing services, maintenance services mm -hmm. on whatever the platform is. Um, I think those are all opportunities as well. It feeds into the education, right? Because mm -hmm. now we have to create certification programs right. to do that, right? 
It keeps, uh, it provides education opportunities for those who are who would not, because it's a new field. Mm -hmm. So somebody who wouldn't normally think about doing that um, um, as a, a I would liken it to an, uh, an artisan skill, mm -hmm. so like a plumber or an electrician where there's a state certification that says it doesn't require necessarily a lot of secondary education, mm -hmm. but it's a certification process. And then you can practice your trade wherever you need right. to practice. And that's a trade that must be practiced. Absolutely. And, in, and then you can provide that opportunity. So that's kind of what mm -hmm. we see kind of the future to be. And then. We had talked about it, or I had assumed it. So traffic management now is the next thing, mm -hmm. and now the next thing is what NASA is doing right. with the air mobility, right? And the fact that we were the only place in the United States to be able to do that is really important. It's very important. Yeah, it's very it's important, huge. and and hopefully, hopefully we can make you know continue to make that happen. And mm -hmm. again. We're not doing that alone, and we've already, you know, we're already working with the Ac Economic Development Authority right. in downtown to figure out what we can do next. Well, I think that's a great segue to a couple of things I want to do as we wrap. First, I want to recognize um, Lone Star UAS is being nominated for the Collier Trophy, oh, uh, yeah. which I think is very exciting. I'm going I'm to list some of the hit past winners because it puts, it kind of puts into context what this award means in, in the industry. Some of the past winners of the Collier Trophy are um, Howard Hughes, Orville Wright, both Apollo 11 and Apollo 8, um, and a handful of other um, super critical organizations or entities that have pushed the limits of what's available in flight. And some of the other current nominees include Bombardier, Gulfstream, the Hubble Space Telescope team, and a handful of other folks. So. It is elite company that Lone Star UAS is is a member of. Well, so congratulations yeah. on the nomination. Well, thank uh, I know you. I kind of sprung that on you here on the air, but I think it's important that that our listeners and and the greater Corpus Christi community understand this is a big deal to have Lone Star UAS here in Corpus Christi. Well, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm too humble. <laughs> But well, it's uh, exciting. So well, no, absolutely. <laughs> I, I, you know, the fact that NASA chose us or trusted us to help them do this test was a really mm -hmm. big deal. And it again, it's not Lone Star. It was the fact that how much of the community embraced what was going on. Right. And NASA uh, really, the feedback we got from the team from NASA really Th there was a clear difference between the level of support in Reno and what Corpus mm -hmm. Christi provided and what we were able to do. And they were very appreciative of it. Awesome. So we've established a reputation. And the fact that NASA was the team and traffic management was nominated, not only nominated, but then accepted, mm -hmm. denotes how important and how critical this work is for uh, aviation. Right. And to really, just to be nominated, accepted, mm -hmm. and having your nomination accepted is award enough. And oh my goodness, if if NASA were to win and we were to win as part of that, mm -hmm. that would be, wow. It'd be awesome. You know, I, yeah. mom was happy when I told <laughs> her I was working with NASA scientists. Right. <laughs> mom will be really happy if yes. I get to tell her, hey, you know, we're part of a national mm -hmm. You know, 110 years the Collier Trophy right. has recognized outstanding space and, and aeroscience research. Mm -hmm. And to be a winner, 
Oh my goodness. It'd be amazing. Again, I never thought I would have had this opportunity. <laughs> right. And it never would have happened if it weren't for the fact that uh, Corpus Christi supported us. Mm -hmm. So our wrap question on the podcast is, what are you excited about in Corpus? Or what are, what's something that you really enjoy to do in Corpus? Uh, personally? Either way, what are you excited about here at the center, or what are you excited about personally? Oh. What do you like to do personally? Well, I tell you, um, what I'm really excited about with the center is the opportunity to both work with students, staff, mm -hmm. create the future, and really working with uh, the larger community at large. Um, and, you know, I, I've mentioned Tommy Kurtz a couple of times. That that's a relationship we really just started the mm -hmm. last six months or so. Okay. So I'm really looking forward to not only growing it. But also our work with Oasis County, mm -hmm. we have an interlocal agreement with the county to provide emergency services if that's mm -hmm. what's required. But really the larger Coastal Bend area as well because it, you know, Portland is just on the other right. side and that's San Patricio and other counties mm -hmm. as well. So working with other op uh, in the Coastal Bend uh, is, is really uh, a great opportunity. Um, from the community perspective, I you know who doesn't like HEB? Right. right? <laughs> who doesn't like Whataburger? That's right. right? Who Amen. doesn't like the hooks? <laughs> That's really great. The uh -huh. uh, Performing Arts Center, I yeah. like going to those. But I, uh, I'm kind of, I shouldn't be embarrassed to say this, but I guess I kind of am. I'm part of the Taoist Tai Chi Society. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm a beginner. I've been taking uh, Tai Chi for over a year now. Awesome. Uh, and it's really. Uh, it's really fun. I generally go Tuesday, Thursday, and mm -hmm. Saturday, um, and so being being part of that is part, and it's really helped my physical and kind of mental mm -hmm. well-being as well. I like going to the uh, St. Matthew's is the church that I attend. I really enjoy the congregants there. Awesome. I'm not a member, but I'm 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 an attending, and mm -hmm. so that that's kind of fun. And I um, so I, I, you know. Um, I've gone down to Mustang Island mm -hmm. and uh, South Padre and, and participated or watched the turtle releases. Oh, and good. So that yeah. was really exciting. Mm -hmm. um, um, uh, and, and quite frankly, um, you know, getting the opportunity to work with uh, Heart Research and really uh, yeah. Comrade Blucher on some of the Gulf and coastal things mm -hmm. that are going on. Uh, I'm really excited about that as well. I never thought of myself as. At one point, I thought I was going to be a marine biologist, but it didn't quite. Pan <laughs> <out>. <laughs> you know, it's funny how biology right. and chemistry does that. But yes. it's just, you know, being a an enabling technology, mm -hmm. and that's kind of and helping others use your technology is just really an exciting thing. Absolutely. And, and for me. I'm on the backside of my career, it really is working with the students and the next generation mm -hmm. to help them be successful um, in, in creating a vision mm -hmm. for the 21st century. And as I jokingly tell the students, but also my sons, they're in their 20s, is that, look, I'm reliant on you to keep me in the lifestyle right. in which I've grown <laughs> accustomed so that in retirement, uh -huh. those social benefits that uh, I've provided to my parents, you'll provide to me. And I, it's my opportunity, you know, it's my responsibility to make sure that you're successful. Absolutely. So that's really it. It's, it's uh, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants and I think a big part of what I'm trying to do for the next 10 years is provide that next generation mm -hmm. the opportunity to do even better things so that they can yeah. help advance. Uh, because technology is not inherently good or evil. Mm -hmm. uh, it's technology, but what is important, and this is really the social aspect of it is, and what are, 
what are the rules that we need to come in place mm -hmm. to help understand that technology is guarded against the negative effects, right. but enhances the good effects. And I really think that within the next 20 years, uh, we're going to see autonomous uh, vehicles um, providing services on the ground, in the air, on the surface, and below the surface. And uh, just like uh, robotics really changed the way the auto industry mm -hmm. has done it, th these autonomous vehicles uh, are going to change the way that we do. And it will really enhance our quality of life. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if, we had the cap if I had the capability to order my groceries now, and have them delivered, mm -hmm. right? Uh, I wouldn't have to run out to the grocery store and expose myself, mm -hmm. right? Or if I lived in a rural area and I needed medicines delivered or right. I needed a swab sent to a lab, mm -hmm. I wouldn't have to go to the doctor's office. I could just swab myself, put it in the drone, right. and have it delivered it to the over. lab, zip it on over, um, and so, uh, or get in a taxi, right, and mm -hmm. fly 20 miles to go from you know, Arlington Stadium to the airport right. without having to get on a train um, or, um, and, and that's local or, you know, it's not beyond the realm of possibility that you get on a 400 person flight and it's a robotically flown mm -hmm. aircraft that goes from A to B. And Unreal. Yeah, and, and, but I, on, you know, I honestly think that that will happen in my children's lifetime. Mm -hmm. I may not live to see it, I think I will, you know, the story we tell in the FAA, or the story the FAA tells, is, you know, in 1903, I have a picture of New York, mm -hmm. there was one car and nothing but horse-drawn carriages. And 10 years later, in 1930, mm -hmm. there's one horse right. and, you know, mil you know, hundreds of thousands of vehicles. Right. And that's, you know, basically within 10 years of uh, um, flight starting, mm -hmm. right? So I think we're going to see, we really will see that in the next uh, uh, 10 or 20 years. Mm -hmm. And it won't be, it won't be the lack of technology, it'll be, it'll really be the lack of the rules right. that allow us to do that safely. And that, that just, I don't want to say how old I'll be then, but uh, my sons will, you know, mm -hmm. my sons and my, hopefully my grandchildren will, you know, my grandchildren will live in an era just like my children live in an era where they didn't know anything. They didn't right. know. They know the internet and mm -hmm. they know cell phones because that's what they grew right. up with. But it didn't exist when they were born. That's right. You know, my grandchildren in 20 years are going to know nothing but because all this stuff mm -hmm. exists, right? And uh, it, it, you know, and I and I believe that Corpus Christi in Texas is going to be a big part of that. Absolutely. And what I'm trying to do is help make that vision a reality. Yeah. As well, part of a team. That's right. Well, thank you so much for no, your time. Thank I really you. appreciate I, it. This I'm has sorry been a great for joy. I'm sorry for talking your ear off. No need to apologize. I think it's important for Corpus to understand just how critical Lone Star UIS is here. And so I'm glad you took the time to come visit. Well, and again, it's not just us. It's really the university because we're part of the university mm -hmm. as well and, and the community because divorced of the support we get from the community, right. we wouldn't be as successful as we are. So. Well, thank you again All for right. your time. Much Take appreciated. Care. Well, I hope you enjoyed hearing from Colonel Sanders as much as I did. I think it's absolutely fascinating that here in Corpus Christi, we have the program that is going to provide the future of drone delivery. I think it's awesome that Colonel Sanders took as much time as he did to visit with us to walk us through the ins and outs of this super important program so that we can know 
in the future, when that package is dropped off at our doorstep, or when we send something from our house to our doctor, that we can thank Colonel Sanders and his team at Lone Star UAS here at Texas A&M Corpus Christi. So a big thank you to Colonel Sanders for coming on the program. Another big thank you to both Chief DeVisser and to Russell Frankis for the introduction. I really appreciate it. And a big thank you to our um, infrastructure partners, the Sound Guys, Sawyer Audiology, and Clint Tucker Homes. And above all, thank you so much for taking time to listen. Mm -hmm.